How are you all doing? How are you all doing? Okay. How are you all doing with respect to temptation? See, I knew I would get... I thought I might get something on the first one. You know, Waco's a friendly place, but I knew I wouldn't get anything on that one. Is there a particular temptation that, that comes to mind when you even hear that word? One that has really been heavy on you for a long time? Is there temptation that you're just tired of and, and it's, it's burning you out and that's, you just, you feel like there's, there's nothing left in you whenever you face that. Um, maybe you don't feel a sense of temptation though because you're just so accustomed to going along with it or, or maybe you just feel the shame of sin after you've confronted temptation unsuccessfully. Um, the passage we're going to look at today, I think, guides us uh, with that um, and, and, and leads us where we need to be in respect to temptation um, so that we can a- answer that question, how are you doing in, in relationship to temptation? So please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, the, the, the passage can be found in your bulletin. I think that's page nine, maybe one of the last few pages or what was that? Ten. Page ten. Or in the, the black Pew Bible in front of you on page 1003. Uh, now, I'm just, a, a long text is printed in your bulletin, but I'm actually just going to read from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So that's probably right kind of in the middle of the page that you have if you're looking at the bulletin. So this is God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's... uh, briefly pray. Our Father in heaven, your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. We pray that this morning you would pierce us and that you would heal those wounds with our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. All right, now, there was a show uh, a couple years ago. I haven't seen it, but I'm going to talk about it anyways. Uh, I think think it's over now. I don't think they have it on anymore. It's a reality show. Um, It premiered after the 2010 Super Bowl. It was called Undercover Boss. Surely a lot of you saw it. Did you guys see it? And in the premiere especially, I watched like a five-minute commercial for it on the internet, and it's moving. I mean, it, it almost makes you want to cry. Um, the, the one, here's what it was if you haven't, like me, seen it, um, and if you haven't seen the little internet commercial, the, the idea was they were going to get bosses, like C, CEOs, COOs, presidents from major corporations, 
and basically have them go undercover and do whatever the lowest job in their company is. So uh, they started with really the best one. I don't think the show's on anymore because I think they ran out of bosses who would do it. <laughs> and I think that they, they started just getting lame ones. But the first one was the CEO or the COO and president of Waste Management, you know, the, the trash company. His name's Lawrence O'Donnell III. And, uh, and so they got him basically to, to take a different name, grow out some, some scruff. Uh, they showed you know, clips of him and his really nice suit, really nice office, his beautiful family, big house. Um, so you get a sense of who he really is, grows the scruff out, changes his name from Lawrence to Randy, and, and goes and just does all the waste management jobs, um, picking up you know, the trash that's blowing out of the landfill, unplugging the stopped up porta potties at an amusement park. And, you know, it's really touching because he, you know, realizes this is so much harder than I thought and my back hurts and I don't know if I can do it tomorrow because I think it was over the course of, you know, three or four or five days. And uh, what he ends up finding, and this is where it really gets moving, he ends up finding all kinds of awful practices that these that these employees kind of at the bottom have to experience from you know being charged extra for clocking in late like one minute late two minute you know pay deduction and all kinds of awful things and so you know they then at the last part of the show have him shave put his suit back on and he's kind of got this moral resolve that he's going to change things i mean he's the chief operating officer he's going to make things better for these people and they do this little scene where they call all of the people he worked with even one guy who fired him into the office and as he said it was the first time he ever got fired um they call him into the office and he walks in and he's wearing his his suit and they're just shocked and they're oh my goodness and he commends them and this one woman he promotes her and tells her he can hire people to help her because she was doing too much work and he hands out raises and it's really really touching um but the the thing is and and i'm going to point back to this later if you look it up there's a lot of really scathing reviews of the show um, in, in the press i mean maybe they're just cynics but there really are because what they're they're noting is this guy is going down to the to the trenches for six days and the whole time he knows he's still got his salary he's still got all the life he had as president and he's going to go right back up so he puts up with it for six days and goes up and they kind of show him you know making all these changes but in reality he, he he does it a little bit and he goes back up and that's it and you know the changes are really just for those five or six lucky souls who who ended up working with him and so with this passage, what, what I want us to, to think about today, as it talks about Jesus sympathizing with us, having experienced temptation in every way as we do, is Jesus just like an undercover, is he just an undercover boss? Is he just one who comes down for a little while, gets a feel for things, and then just kind of goes back to where things are nice and comfortable? Or can he really deeply sympathize with us and change our lives so i'm going to do that i want to look at we're going to look at three things and really just those couple of verses Um, we're going to look at the context of this passage in hebrews so that we can get a sense of how it applies to us today we're going to look at the purpose of the passage in order to see the faithfulness that it's calling us to and we're going to look at the rationale of the passage or kind of the reason it gives us to live out lives of faithfulness. So that's the context, the purpose, 
and the rationale. So briefly, the context of Hebrews 1 through 5 be great if we could just read the whole thing, but that would take a while. So I'm just going to give you a couple of uh, highlights about what we have leading up to what we just read. Chapter 1 of Hebrews starts out just making a really big point that Jesus is God. If you could sum it up, he's exalted. He is one with God the Father. And then as it moves on, it chapter 2 points out that he's God and he is also the Savior. And then chapter 3 is where it gets interesting because the purpose of Hebrews, kind of like this passage, is to encourage Christians to remain faithful followers of Jesus. Um, and, it, and it does this, Hebrews does this with both positive and negative um, encouragement and warnings. And so it gets interesting in chapter 3 because um, it's called a, to follow Jesus is a call to continue believing believing the faith, living it out. And it's made in Hebrews to particular Christians who a lot today say are are kind of considering falling away, leaving Christianity, maybe even going back to Judaism, which at that point in the Roman Empire had regained a state of toleration. So basically Judaism offered this really much more convenient and comfortable life, we think. And, And these Christians and Hebrews are thinking, you know what? Let's just go back to that. And so this author is, is really warning them, but also encouraging them to remain faithful. And we see the warnings uh, really pick up in chapter 3. And the author compares his audience to the Israelites who were wandering in the desert with Moses after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt, but a generation of those Israelites who never made it into the promised land. They, they never got, basically they never got God's promise because of their disobedience. And, and if we remember that story, we can remember some of their disobedience, right? They begged to turn back and go back to slavery in Egypt and not follow God's will to the promised land whenever Moses, um, or whenever things got tough. They deliberately disobeyed God's will in building the golden calf and trying to worship through that instead of worship through the the law that Moses was receiving from God. And actually, if we look over um, at Hebrews 3, 16 through 19, I'll I'll actually read it if you don't have it out. Um, We'll see a little bit more of what the author of Hebrews, the way the author of Hebrews thinks that you who I'm writing to are looking a lot like these Israelites. And so he says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So Hebrews calls those Israelites those who heard and yet rebelled. And he's kind of saying, Hebrews is kind of saying to its audience, you're looking a lot like that. But how how does this passage then, what we just read a little while ago, 14 through 16 of chapter 4, apply to us today then? Um, Kind of a different situation. And I think in the most basic sense it's this. In general, what we're talking about is turning away from God 
which is precisely the essence of temptation. So what tem- all temptation attempts to entice us away from God's will, which is our believing in Jesus and living out that belief. I'll say that one more time. All temptation attempts to entice us away from God's will, believing in Jesus and being faithful to him above all things. So I think this passage is for us, whether like the audience of Hebrews, you feel like you're slipping away from Christianity, being so overcome by temptation and the lure of other things, whether you're holding tightly onto your Christianity, but the daily grind of temptation and sin and temptation and sin is just seeming too much or it's, it's just beating you up. Whether your Christianity is weak because you're just not accustomed to struggling with temptation or I think it even is for us, even if some of you aren't Christians and so many other things in Christianity and Jesus have far more allure for your life. They look far more attractive. I think this passage, in fact, is for all of us. So I want to kind of move back to it at verse 14 and point out what the purpose of the passage is. And so verse 14 reads, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So in just the way that's stated, it's pretty clear that the purpose of this passage is for the people it's given to, to hold fast to our confession. But, but what does that mean? I think for us to understand what it means for them and for us to hold fast to our confession, we have to think a little bit about that in relationship to the, the context of what we just talked about. Remember, these are people who have confessed Jesus, who are Christians, but they're turning away from God's will or looking like they're turning away or thinking about like thinking about turning away from God's will. And so for them, holding fast is believing in Jesus and living out that faith. And, and the two of those go together. They can't be separated. Believing in Jesus has to be lived out. Uh, you know, if I really believe that God loves me, as he says he does, and I really believe in Jesus... I wouldn't get so frustrated and angry with the people around me when I have just one of those awful days at work and I think they've caused it and nothing's going the way I want it to. You know, if I really believed in Jesus and really believed that he cares for me like the good shepherd he says he is, right? I wouldn't have so many of my kind of thoughts while I just sit around during the day about, you know, the bank account and, or about how much more it'd be nice to have um, wondering if maybe I'll have a little bit more if I, if I don't quite have enough. If, I re- if we really believed, right, our actions would follow at least to the degree that we believe. And so because God's will for us is to live out that same confession that Jesus is our Lord and, and follow and live out that belief, um, we can say that we, in fact, turn from our confession even if only briefly, every time that we fall to temptation and sin, every time we sin, that in, in its own sense is a turning away from God. Maybe not in the same sense as those Israelites, maybe not in the exact same sense as it seems like these uh, people that Hebrews is writing to, 
are, are turning away, but it is in fact us turning away. And so this passage, the purpose of it to us is to encourage us and to encourage you and your faith in Jesus and living out that faith as you struggle with temptation and sin. So with that, that purpose in mind, let's look down at verse 15 and why we should hold fast in the face of temptation. Why should we do it? And we see this a little actually back in 14. Right? The author said, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then verse 15 picks that idea up. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So to state it simply, the reason that this passage gives for holding fast to our confession and living it out is that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way just as we are. But do you, do you really believe that Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses? And I don't mean the sympathy. You know, we use that word nowadays in a real soft emotional sense. You know, you sympathize with somebody, you see what they experience, and you think, ah, I don't want, I wouldn't, glad that's not me. Or, you, or even just in a more compassionate way, you see something happen to somebody and you, you feel sad. Not in that sense. Do you believe that Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses in a much deeper sense? Not just that he feels sad that you have them or that he feels bad for you. Right? The sympathy, I think, that's at hand here is the kind that you see resulting from true camaraderie. You know, people who've been through really difficult times together or even the same difficult time not together have a sense of understanding of each other that other people who haven't experienced that haven't. And I know that Waco gets that because that's, that's the whole notion of a support group. And I just briefly Googled Waco support groups and, and there's, there's tons. You know, we've got um, cancer support groups, diabetes support groups, vets helping vets, peer support groups. So people who understand one another, Alcoholics Anonymous, Alcoholic Teens Anonymous, and it goes on. And the whole idea of those support groups working, being effective, changing people's lives and making them better is that the people who are going to be there when you show up have experienced the same thing and understand you and can help you go through whatever it is you're facing. So we, we get that idea of sympathy, that idea that you have with support groups. And I want us to, to consider, do we really believe that Jesus has experienced the struggles that we do. And, and I think that this is why Undercover Boss is both so warm, fuzzy, and sentimental and so disappointing, right? It's so warm and fuzzy because we see this guy who we know never experiences that kind of feeling and experiencing what these people who are picking up trash experience. He's, 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 he's getting that experience and, and knowing what they go through. But it's also disappointing because we know that that guy's going to go back to his office after six days 
right? And we know, here's, here's actually what one um, critic from the New York Times when the show came out said about it. She said, there's also something embarrassingly futile about the climax. It's like a king dispensing small favors on his way back to the throne. Futile and also futile. Larry's plans to reform his company and humanize the workplace seem great until he starts to order up committees to study what he has learned. So many good intentions have gone to die in task forces, off-site meetings, and mentoring programs. Undercover boss, she concludes, is a working-class fantasy that bursts its own illusions. And so undercover boss is so disappointing because we know that that ultimate sympathy isn't there. And we know that that ultimate change isn't going to come about for the 46,000 other employees uh, in the waste management company that, that didn't get a day with, uh, with Larry. So do you believe that Jesus has experienced those same struggles? And, and I think Hebrews has a bit of an answer for us. Why can he sympathize? What has he experienced? And what he's experienced is temptation which itself is also really, really hard to believe. And it kind of it goes against our sensibilities, I think, at least today. You know, we don't want to think of Jesus as being or having kind of experienced the mess of life that we, that we know. The, you know, the, the Renaissance painters never really showed that. Um, but let's look at the temptation side of this. What, first of all, what is temptation? I think another way that we could define it or describe it, and this is a paraphrase of the Puritan John Owen, uh, is, is this. He says, in general, temptation is anything that has a force to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience to God and to any sin in any degree whatsoever. So another way to think of temptation is anything it attempts to entice, to lure, to seduce you from following God and following something else. So how then was Jesus tempted? And we, we do have a few clear examples. Uh, one, one is this. The Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus praying, and, and we find him pray, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what my will, but yours be done. I know that this is kind of a controversial passage and people debate it, but I think we can say in the most basic sense that Jesus, knowing what was before him, right, torture and death, as a human, would have preferred to have that go at least some other way. Right? No human, which Jesus was, prefers torture and death to something to something else in just the basic sense. And so in front of Jesus was the idea, okay, was the possibility that maybe it could happen another way. But what we see is um, the other half of his prayer that, that he did desire above all things to follow God's will, which he did to the cross. But the possibility of having the cup removed, I think, was a, was a real temptation. But that's, I think that's one example and I think that's an example that's probably tough for us to think about as being similar to what we deal with. You know, it might be a little bit more extreme of an example. And so what of what this passage says 
Jesus suffering temptation in every respect as we are. And again, this is where we have to remember that Jesus was human. And the acts and objects of sin presented themselves to him in the same way that they're presented to us. In a masquerade of goodness and desirability, we need to remember that he was human, completely. Fully God and fully man, not just partially human or not just like a human. He was a human being. And so we can say very reasonably that Jesus possessed all the basic desires of humans. A desire for comfort. I mean, he enjoyed the material things that God made and was surely tempted to cling to some of them more than he should have or to live for these material things or to long to have material things that other people around him had that he didn't. He probably had the basic human desire to fit into society, right? God made us as social beings. We don't live alone, isolated by ourselves, and we want to be in a group with other people. And Jesus surely had a desire to be a part of a group. And does this not show us grounds for him to be tempted to participate in the crude jokes, the prejudices and racisms that are needed to fit into the group, to kind of compromise his own convictions in order to fit into that group? He probably had a desire for for pleasantness, right? We, We want things to be pleasant. We don't want conflict. And so surely he was tempted to avoid confronting people's sin and to avoid obeying God if it would make him stand out awkwardly or if it would make for uncomfortable confrontation. Surely he had a desire to care for himself and avoid physical pain. Um, And I think that that's surely grounds for him to be tempted to avoid loving other people and being merciful to them in order to just care for his own body, to get rest when he's worn out from his ministry. He had a desire, I'm sure, to right wrongs and a dislike of sin, which is a great thing. So clearly he was tempted to, however, to to gossip with his friends about other people's wrongs and to right the wrongs all around him, right? Like his friend Peter tried to when Jesus was being arrested uh, instead of trusting God's plan for making things right. He had real friendships with real sinful people just like us. So surely he was tempted, especially when those friends turned from him and even said they didn't know him in his darkest hour to respond with bitterness and not forgive them. And I'll just throw in this one. Being human, he was not asexual. And I don't, I don't need to go into detail on that one. But he was a human. So Jesus was tempted, like Hebrew says. I think we really can believe that. And every respect as we are, yet without sin. And it's, it's so important for us to remember that last part of the verse, which the text seems to really emphasize, yet without sin. So all of those temptations that I just kind of speculated he probably had because he was a human, he faced and he didn't sin. So he experienced temptation, but he didn't fail. 
and in a sense, though, I think that maybe, I mean, maybe that's really where part of the problem is for us really trying to believe that he can sympathize with us. I mean, was he really like us? Does the rationale of this passage work? I, I've struggled with this passage a lot and thinking of that the humanity of Jesus was really enough like mine for him to sympathize. I know the struggle of temptation, but I also know the suffering of failure after succumbing to temptation. I know the suffering of sin, the shame. I've, I've struggled to believe that he can truly sympathize with me because more than suffering temptation, I suffer the shame of that sin over and over and over and over. You, pro- you know the feeling I'm talking of, whether it's the one in your gut when you realize that's, it's that one that last time I said I wasn't going to do that or I said I was going to be better in this part of my life and I've now been worse or whether it be the, the kind of hot face, you know, if, if you realize other people are noticing that sin, if you realize other people see it, you, you know that feeling. And I've questioned whether or not which when I think of sin and temptation, I think that's more of my experience than walking into temptation and thinking, all right, it's a moment of tempa- temptation. Let's you know, gather the troops inside and face this thing off. I think more of that feeling afterwards, knowing I've failed. And so instead of comfort, the temptation is to feel that what we see is to feel what we see in verse 13. Um, and if you just look just above what we read, the, the, what we feel often, I think, is, is naked and exposed, you know, just like Adam and Eve in the garden after they fell, all right, after they sinned, and they realized they were naked and ashamed and hid. Jesus, on the other hand, while maybe, you know, naked and tempted and having it really tough, didn't have that experience of facing the temptation and then failing. So there's two sides of this coin of sympathy. Um, there's the side of having experienced the temptation and the, the struggle, especially against that resolve that we get, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this right. But then there's the other side of the coin of having experienced and being able to sympathize on the basis of that wretched feeling that we have when we have failed. And so can Jesus offer both? And I think that verse 13 of this section tells us or leads us to the answer that yes, he can. And so let me point out, you know, in verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word exposed there is a used really metaphorically. And that metaphor comes from the bending, bend, taking a sacrificial animal, bending its neck back and exposing its neck so the knife can come in. And in, the, in a passage talking about a high priest and talking about that type of exposure... I think our author doesn't just have in mind our nakedness and our shame, but that exposure that Jesus had 
and that exposure that the original high priest in Israel saw when he went in once a year on the Day of Atonement to the Holy of Holies, knife and goat in hand to expose that animal and, and slit its throat so that there would be blood for the offering to put onto the mercy seat uh, for another year of living before God. And so what we have to remember in this passage is that Jesus is not only our great high priest, but he was our great sacrifice of atonement when he was crucified. His going to the cross is like seeing the high priest walk through the curtains into the Holy of Holies with no animal but just his knife. On the cross, he bore the eternal consequences of our sin. That sense of enduring and persistent shame. He suffered in being alone, which is what that shame does to us. The first thing you feel is alone. Being separated from God, which he had never known before. Being exposed for God to look on him and see our shame and failure instead of his own righteousness, which he had worked his butt off for 33 years to to earn. And so, therefore, Jesus as our great high priest and our great sacrifice can sympathize with us in the deepest way, both because he was tempted as we are, yet without sin, and without sin because he took the shame that we have in being naked and exposed before God. Jesus knows both the difficulty we experience in facing temptation, and he knows the sense of shame that we, we cringe every time we fail that temptation. He knows our struggle and the failure, yet without sin. He became a man and experienced this so that we might be freed from temptation. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The purpose of Jesus being both great high priest and great sacrifice is so that we can hold fast to the confession of our faith that Jesus is our Lord and so that we can continue to live that out. And though that won't happen completely in this life, that temptation will always be here. It does happen in this life through the sympathy that we have in Jesus. And with that sympathy, we can confidently confront temptation and hold fast to the confession and live out our faith. So as verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.